right. Please be seated. It is great to see everyone this morning. And as my wife said earlier, it's great to be back. We were traveling in Asia, and uh, they gave me this beautiful Indonesian batik. Can you guys say batik? It's got to be a little quicker. Batik. Batik. And I promised them I'd wear it for you today, so that's what I've got on. Um, don't be jealous, uh, but you cannot get it here in the States. Sorry. Um, but we did have an amazing trip, and... Uh, just really was encouraged to be with the fellowship, uh, your brothers and sisters all over the globe, uh, worshiping God, uh, sometimes in English, sometimes in Japanese, sometimes in Bahasa, and uh, it was really neat to sing some of the same songs, and uh, every now and then we'd be singing in English, and everyone else is singing a different language, but we got the same tune, so that was good enough, and we were having a good time uh, enjoying that fellowship. Uh, as we uh, came back, there's just so many things that we wanted to share with you guys and just saw how many different ways God makes himself known on the earth. So today is called, Let the Earth Hear His Voice. And I wanted to start out in Psalm 19 and to set the tone with this verse as we talk about this concept of God revealing himself and who he is uh, in our world. It says in Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. You know, when you uh, think about the stars and the planets... Uh, you think about the orbits of the different moons and gravitational pull and all the galaxies that are out there. I don't know about you, but it begs me to believe that God exists. It, it gives me cause to credit the creator for this incredible creation. Uh, I've shared this before, but Arlene and I got a chance to meet Neil Armstrong. I'm sure you guys know who he is, right, outside of this picture. Um, one of those guys that got to the moon and, uh, and shared about it with us as we were talking with him in a really incredible situation. I don't know how it happened, but there we are in a room alone with Neil Armstrong and uh, asking him, man, how was it? And uh, he was more concerned with uh, holding our baby Talia at the time than he was with talking about being on the moon. And so he was kind of playing with her. And we were like, yes, sure hands do not exist. Please go ahead and take our baby. Um, not forever, just for a minute. But anyway, so we were hanging out with Neil and he eventually said, yeah, at some point I looked back at the earth from the moon and I covered it with my thumb and I said, there must be a God. You know, there's certain things that you see in life, opportunities, windows into God's creation. And you say to yourself, there must be a designer. There must be a creator. There must be a God. It's kind of like when you see an amazing athlete do something. And you say, oh my goodness, that's like not humanly possible. And you say, there must be a God. When one of our uh, brothers or sisters uh, goes through a challenging time and comes through it, uh, miraculously being able to repent or persevere or get through what seems like insurmountable odds, you say, wow, there must be a God. There must have been extra help that they got there. 
In the same way we see really cool things on the earth, like when you see an awesome Ferrari, you can't help but think of Enzo Ferrari, you know, the founder of, of all the Ferraris, the sleek design. You give credit to the designer. You give credit to the creator. When you hold your iPhone, when you're on your MacBook Pro, I mean, you got to give some credit to Steve Jobs, right? No, you don't? <laughs> we got an opportunity to go to a museum in Japan and there was an exhibit uh, by a very famous uh, artist, painter, fine artist, poet, uh, revolutionary uh, named Yayoi Kasu uh, Kasama. And uh, she's very obvious. When you see her art, you know it's her. It's really bright. Usually there's polka dots and she matches it with what she's wearing. And you give credit to the creator. It's obvious and it would be ridiculous if you gave credit to someone who wasn't responsible for what you're seeing. In the same way, each of us is God's art. We are athlete, we are art, we are argument for the creator. And we talk to people about God, uh, we share our faith with people, and we express our gratitude to the divine designer. But the Bible also says in Luke 19 and 37 through 40, that the whole crowd of disciples one day began joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. They were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they heard this and they said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says, Well, I tell you, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. You know, the purpose of creation is to credit our creator. And if we don't proclaim him, even the stones are going to say something about it. But we do. We do proclaim him. We share about him. And there's a lot of different ways that we do. Uh, we see God in all kinds of different ways, right? We see him in small kindnesses. Uh, we see him in reconciliation. We see him in generosity. We see him in great sacrifice. And in James 1.17, it says that every good and perfect gift comes from where? Comes from above. Comes from God. Come, comes from our perfect Father. I love this concept that goodness itself is a creation of God. Uh, you know, we've been watching the show. Have you guys heard of the show called The Toy Box? Okay, if you haven't heard of it, it's a, it's a show on ABC. We've been watching it with the kids the last couple weeks uh, where... People invent these toys and they go on TV and they pitch it uh, to these different mentors and judges and uh, then they decide whether it's going to go on and eventually one toy is going to be uh, bought and sold by Mattel, right? It's kind of like Shark Tank but with toys, right? And I, I started thinking about this concept as I was reading that passage again. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from God. And it's kind of like if you showed up to one of these shows and they were like, okay, what's your invention? And he said, well, today, what I have for you is goodness. Like God invented goodness. Can you imagine showing up to a show and going, yeah, I invented every good thing that you ever experienced. Yeah, I invented that. And that's God. God takes credit for everything good that has happened in this world. That's a really cool invention. And I think you'd probably get a good deal if you were on Shark Tank or the Toy Box that day. You know, that means that anytime something good happens, we've got to give God the ultimate credit. Now, if you're like me, and you might be a skeptic, I won't have you raise your hands, but 
I'm skeptical in my nature. We say, well then, can I blame God for every bad thing that happens? You ever think that? No? Well, here's the deal. God invented good, but he didn't invent bad. So he can't take credit for it, so you can't blame him for it. Does that make sense? So we move on from that. So here we are talking about different ways that God reveals himself through us. So let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 3. We're going to do a little Bible study today. You with me? And today we're going to rediscover three ways that we reflect God's glory. Like the stones that cry out, there are three ways that our lives cry out to the world that our God is good. Here's the first one, and we'll read here in Acts chapter 3, verse 2 through verse 10. And the first way that we cry out is with compassion. Acts chapter 3. It says in verse 2, Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to a temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I don't have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. He instantly, uh, and instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. You would jump too if your ankles started to work. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and then they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And we'll stop there. It's a great story. Uh, probably many of us are familiar with that uh, and what happens here. But imagine, you're a Jew who could never worship in the house of God. He's outside the temple. He's there at the gate begging for money, begging for alms. And he's not allowed to go in there even though he's a Jew and he's of the tribe because he's considered blemished. He's considered unworthy because he has this, uh, this problem. Uh, either he's crippled or lame. There's different uh, examples of what that might look like. But something in his body doesn't work. And so they consider in their custom that he's not allowed in. So Jesus is going to do something about that through his disciples that are walking in. And what you got to imagine here that happens, and there's something very subtle in the text. If you guys look back at the text, what does he do besides jumping and being happy the very first moment he's able to walk? He praises God, but look at the middle of verse 8. He went with them into the temple courts. That's very important because he wasn't able to go in. This is the first time he's actually able to worship his God in the house of worship in the temple. So the first thing he does, he praises God, he jumps up and down, and then he goes in to be able to worship. No, they didn't give him money, but they accepted him into the spiritual community. No longer would he have to sit outside the gate. He can go in. This is more than a kindness. This is compassion. What is compassion? Compassion is when you imagine yourself in someone's shoes. It's when you feel what they're going through. 
It's when the empathy rises up in you and you're able to connect to the pain or whatever it is that someone else is going through. And the Greek translation of this word in the Bible, it literally means that your insides go out. That there's something in you that's so painful it it comes out of you and connects with what someone else is going through. That's compassion. And what happens here is that people are astonished by this healing, by this miracle, by this compassion. Compassion cries out to the earth, especially when it doesn't make any sense to the world. You know, uh, what makes sense in a small Muslim village an hour outside of Jakarta, Indonesia, where we visited, uh, what makes sense there is patriarchy, power, tradition, and poverty. And we saw a lot of that as we drove through the streets and visited with the people in the small village. Uh, What doesn't make sense is putting a Christian orphanage in the middle of that village. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that you, A, in a Muslim area, would put in anything Christian. It doesn't make sense that it would be so anti-cultural that could potentially uh, find great resistance in the community. It doesn't make sense that you would put this orphanage basically saying, you're not able to take care of your kids, so we're going to try to take care of them because you're not. It doesn't make sense. And yet, there it is. In this community, and I'll show you a couple pictures of it. This is the road leading up to the orphanage. And I want to share with you a little bit about it. You know, this is an orphanage called Palangi Kasi. Kasi is uh, the word love. Palangi is rainbow. And so the name of this orphanage outside of Jakarta is basically the rainbow of love. And uh, you you see it. uh, You see it not only painted and illustrated on the walls uh, of the orphanage, but you see uh, all the different smiles on the faces of the kids there. Uh, This is Hannah. Uh, She is a special needs child that's grown up in the orphanage. Uh, No one wanted her, so she wasn't adopted. And uh, basically, she stays in the orphanage, and she's almost of age uh, where they're going to have to figure out as an adult what kind of life she's going to live. And so the orphanage there is actually uh, thinking about hiring her to be able to work there in the orphanage because her options are very few. In fact, in this village, uh, what normally happens to girls uh, when they get of age is that their families start to rent them out to other families to be able to bear children uh, for other Muslim families, and they would receive money for being able to do that. And so it's considered quite an honor uh, for these young girls, 13, 14 years old, to be able to do this uh, in this village. So Hannah uh, was saved from quite a lot. This orphanage is doing amazing work. And uh, here's a picture that we took while we were hanging out. Yes, they dab in uh, Indonesia. Um, Not sure what he was doing. He might have been in the middle of the dab there. I think that's Caleb. Uh, But we had a great time with the boys. uh, Legally, there in Indonesia, if you reach the age of five, uh, you're not able to be adopted. So you... uh, quote-unquote, age out very quickly. If you're not adopted as a small child, uh, there's not a chance for you to be placed in a family. And so what you're looking at here are boys that are over the age of five. Uh, They will be living in the orphanage. Now, you might think that's terrible, um, and and there are a lot of challenges with that, and we do 
pray that these guys uh, one day will find family. But what they do is they find family in the church community that supports them. And so they're growing up. They're going to school. They're going to church on Sundays. And a lot of these guys, uh, when they reach 18, they study the Bible and they decide what they want to do. And a lot of them become Christians. Uh, They decide that they want to follow God because they see the love of their mentors and the caretakers in this community, in this facility. And we were able to meet a couple of the women who uh, didn't get adopted, grew up in the orphanage, and are now disciples of Jesus and work at the orphanage. And they are happy. I mean, smiles from ear to ear. We're so excited to be able to spend fellowship time with us. And it's just amazing. I saw a couple babies while we were there. And uh, they're precious and uh, so sacred. Uh, This is uh, on the right. This is uh, Nico. And uh, he is uh, not a Muslim baby. Um, This is uh, Augusto. And uh, he is a Muslim baby. And basically, the law also in Indonesia, which is the largest Muslim nation in the world, Uh, is that Muslim babies that are given up for adoption, even though they're given up by their family, if they're Muslim, they have to be placed in a Muslim home. And so the orphanage does a great job uh, with trying to place those kids in in great homes, great families with Muslim parents. Uh, These two are actually promised in adoption, and they're going to be swept up in love soon. Uh, Nico is actually being adopted by a family in our church over there in Jakarta. And, uh, and Augusta is also, also finding a home. Uh, to me, I saw this picture and I thought, wow, it's so incredible to think about the trajectory of their lives. You know, I wonder if uh, one day they'll reconnect and find out their story and find out that these two, both the exact same age, uh, they, they look like brothers and they play so well together. And uh, I caught this image as Augusto was hanging on to Nico's leg, just in love. Uh, they were just connecting, and it was just so cool to see them around each other. But this Muslim and this Christian, they're going to go their separate ways. But I thought, wow, what the orphanage is doing to help them. In the last several years, uh, they've, had, uh, they've been able to place 124 children in adoptive homes. And I think that's very encouraging to see what the work is doing. It was a very moving day for us to be there to uh, play games and play soccer. And uh, they kept calling. They weren't sure whether to call me uh, Beckham or Ibrahimovic because of my hair. And they were, they were debating and they were having fun with it, touching my hair and uh, having a good time. And uh, we were just having a, an incredible time connecting with them and also with the workers there. And they told us some stories that uh, were really just so inspiring. And I want to share one of them with you. You know, a few years ago... Uh, they were, obviously, they're already so countercultural, uh, counter-religious in the community, and so there was some resistance uh, in the community to what they were doing. And uh, in the community at that time, there was a, uh, a radical Muslim cell, and the leader of that cell was upset about what the uh, Christian orphanage was doing. They had heard that they were trying to convert all the, the Muslim kids that come in, and so he wanted to go in and find out for himself. So he Um, posed as a volunteer, uh, but really was spying on what they were doing inside the orphanage. So he would volunteer uh, in the orphanage and try to figure out what was going on. So um, one day he actually went in expecting to find one thing and found something else. And uh, he went in, actually, uh, he had explosives tied to his body um, and was prepared to uh, do some damage. But he kept coming back and realized that not only was no one forcing him to do anything or 
uh, you know, convert. But there was so much love and compassion there that he eventually, his heart was moved. And he went back and he told them, we are, we're not going to mess with this orphanage anymore. And he continued to volunteer at the orphanage and uh, started to connect uh, with the Christian community and even come to church. Uh, his family found out that he was going to church and uh, even interested in studying the Bible and thinking about conversion. And because he was the leader of that radical Muslim cell, uh, they didn't do anything to him because he was the leader. And so he just told them, this is my decision. Leave them alone. Leave me alone. Um, I'm exploring this for myself. But his parents found out and his mom was so upset that she drank rat poison to kill herself. Um, she survived. And uh, later, um, this young man would nurse her back to health. Um, but after he had made the decision that I'm going to become a Christian. And so he decided, after studying the Bible, that he would make Jesus his Lord and he was baptized into Christ. <clears throat> his name is uh, Kumar Udin. And you know, it's uh, a little bit like Kaiser Soze. You know, you hear these stories and you're like, can this be real, you know? And so I'm like, okay, I mean, I'm a skeptic. I already told you. And I, I believed it and I was moved and I was like, wow. I'm like, so is he around? Can I meet him? And they're like, yeah, he's going to be at church tomorrow. And I'm like, can you introduce me to him? I just, you know, I just, just want to meet him. So uh, this is him right here, Kumar Udin. He is real. The story is real. I asked him, and someone translated, I said, can I share your story back in New York? And he said, yeah, absolutely. Um, not only that, we're now Facebook friends, so he's like totally legit. Uh, right there, there's the evidence. And he's like a spokesperson for Hope Worldwide. It doesn't get better than that. Compassion cries out. It moves the world. It tells a story, and it's a loud story of love. May we have a compassion like this, putting ourselves in other shoes, going in where they are, doing things that don't make sense to the world, but make perfect sense to God. Point number two, our conviction cries out. Our conviction cries out. Let's continue our Bible study in Acts chapter 4 and find out a little bit later after this crippled is healed, what happens and what's the response? In Acts chapter 4, verse 17. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So the religious authorities got together, they called them in again, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you, or to listen to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. We'll stop there. You know, the religious system at the time did not know how to respond to what was happening. Uh, the cripple was healed in front of everyone. There was all, all these witnesses. Uh, he went into the temple courts and worshiped God. The people were uh, starting to, to transfer their faith. 
uh, from whatever that system was into Jesus, into the message of the gospel. And so when they didn't know how to respond, they brought him in and they did what some people do when they don't know how to respond. They threatened them. It's like a little kid that has no comeback or nothing left to say. Uh, They might resort to threats. You better stop or else or I'm going to do this to you. And it's a sign of desperation and it can get ugly and it doesn't just exist in the kid community, right? Sometimes adults uh, can resort to this kind of desperate plea. So Peter and John have to deal with this threat. They have to figure out how they're going to respond. Are they going to be diplomatic? Are they going to cave? And they respond with outright conviction. They say, what's right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to listen to him? And then, even though they say, hey, we're going to continue, what is the response from the religious authority? They threaten them some more. Because, you know, I guess they thought that was going to work if they just did it louder and more often. But it doesn't, because they answer in this conviction. Conviction cries out to the earth. Conviction truly stands out. Because we live in a world where there isn't a lot of moral conviction. Uh, A few years ago, I remember reading all about Tim Tebow, this football player. And, uh, you know, he was already kind of a celebrity because he had done great in college football. And he had gotten drafted into the NFL. And that didn't necessarily pan out. But it was such a big deal about his decision to be a virgin. That he wasn't going to have sex before he was married. And it was in all the papers. And Ashley Madison, and uh, they, they gave out this $1 million challenge to disprove his virginity. And all these people were going after him. And is it true? It can't possibly be true. Why? Moral conviction cries out to the world. It stands out. It's so different when someone stands up for what's right. It's countercultural. And you know, conviction is not something that is muttered under our breath or whispered or told in secret. Conviction is something that has to be stood up for. It has to be something that cries out. Convictions like, no, I won't take the extra money that isn't rightfully mine. No, I won't take advantage of this situation. No, I won't abuse. No, I won't be impure. I won't be immoral. I won't willfully lust. I won't lie. I will hold my ground. I'll tell the truth. I'll face the consequences regardless. That's what happens when we have conviction. And it's not just no to things, it's yes to things, right? Yes, I will be pure. Yes, I will be faithful. Yes, I will protect my eyes from evil. Yes, I will work hard at my job, even though it's tough. And sometimes others who break their moral code will rise up above me in the worldly standard. Yes, I will focus on the good things over the bad. Yes, I'll pray and I'll read my Bible every day. Yes, I will give. I will give to the church. I will commit to the body of Christ. I'll be an active part of the spiritual community. These are convictions that we hold deeply and dearly. And they stand out in a world that lacks conviction. You know, we were uh, blessed to be able to worship with the churches in Tokyo and the churches uh, in Jakarta. And uh, this is the building that now the Jakarta Church owns in the middle of the central business district uh, in the city. It's beautiful and they've done an incredible job and it seats about 1,500 people. The church is much bigger than that so they have to have an 8 a.m. service and a 10 a.m. service. You say 8 a.m., no way. They actually started right at 8 a.m. Isn't that amazing? It was some kind of miracle. I mean, uh, 
like 8 a.m. and they're like singing and wow, everyone's like in the door. They're not like fraternizing and eating and doing all. They're like in there. They're like ready to go. Lord is possible. Amen. That's another sermon. You know, after 1984 uh, in Indonesia, there was a law that was passed that uh, churches could not register legally in the nation. So if you had registered your church, your official church before 1984, and there are a lot of churches, Catholic church, a lot of churches that were able to register, you're okay, you're legal, you have sort of a a protection uh, under the law. But after 84, you couldn't. And so uh, our church went in there and, you know, we were planting churches all over Asia and Singapore had gone in with a group here to Jakarta and uh, they were praying, God, you know, we we don't want to, it's a very corrupt place. The the government is very corrupt and uh, they didn't want to have to kind of fall into the same pattern that a lot of other people did and have to bribe someone and pay off someone. Uh, They wanted to have conviction and and yet they also uh, wanted to be a legal entity in the nation. And so they're praying, trying to figure out what to do. And uh, it was amazing. One of the brothers in the church worked for the Joint Chief of Staff in the government. And uh, years went by, and this, this uh, political f- official with a lot of power would often offer this brother uh, in, in the church different things. Hey, I really value you. Is there anything I can do for you? Is there anything you want? He would offer money and little perks on the side. And our brother in Christ would always say no. He said, I'm, I'm just honored to be able to do my job well. So time went on and time went on. And, you know, they're praying about this registration thing. And finally, you know, he has like a private meeting. He pulls him in his office, joint chief of staff, says, look, I insist that I give you something. So anything you ask for, just name it. I insist. You, you years, I've offered you things and you've always said no. What is it that you want? And so he goes, well... Is there any way that you could register my church officially and legally? And the Joint Chief of Staff is like, oh, okay, that's against the law, but yes, we will register you. <laughs> so the Joint Chief of Staff made a few phone calls, and now our fellowship, our church in Jakarta, Indonesia, and even if you look them up on Facebook and the internet, it says official because they are an officially registered church, I think the only one after 1984 in the whole nation. They, uh, over the last several years, they've had a lot of success uh, helping very prominent business people uh, come into the church. And, you know, a lot of these guys are, are official, uh, sorry, not official, they're, um, they're big time owners of factories, companies, CEOs, etc. And they're used to the corrupt way of doing business in the nation. And so one of the things that the church does when they study the Bible with these guys is they challenge them to no longer uh, participate in that corrupt way of doing business. In return, uh, as we were hearing stories both from many of the business people and also some of the church leaders, uh, often as they're studying the Bible, they say, okay, I will do that, but you tell me first, how are you a registered church? They always ask this question because they know that in the church community, uh, the Christian church community, a lot of churches, mega churches, evangelical churches have gone into Indonesia and they have become registered because they bribed someone or they basically bought into the system so that they could have registration status, but they did it in a way that kind of everyone does business there. And these guys wanted to know, if you're asking me to clean up my act, I want to make sure your act is clean too. And then they tell this story. 
And after that, they're like, I want to be part of your church. <laughs> and I'll share more about this in the, the coming weeks, but I got a chance to lead um, a Bible talk, a small group, uh, with all millionaires. And uh, it was really neat. And uh, they had a lot of people visiting that Bible talk that day. And they would sort of stand up, hey, it's my first time uh, visiting. And it was just like any little Bible study discussion uh, on a Tuesday night. It was really cool. And I uh, got to meet a lot of these people. And they told me about these stories. They told me that the church had conviction. And they told me that that's what they want to imitate. Because it's so unlikely. It's so different. It's so countercultural. And it's exactly the way they believe Jesus would want them. Conviction stands out in our world. Convictions cry out. And convictions will change our community. Point number three and finally, our contribution cries out. Our contribution cries out. Let's look at the end of the story in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. And then we'll close out our lesson together. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. You still with me? I know the campus is gone, but we still have some energy, right? All right, let's read verse 32 and close out. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. We'll stop there. You know, Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, uh, writes in Greek. That's the original sort of common language of the time. And uh, this Greek language about sharing possessions and distribution of wealth and no claim on territory is actually very similar to some Greek treaties of friendship, treaties of connection between peoples or uh, between houses or between territories or land. But there's one big difference. The difference is this. In these Greek treaties, all of these agreements were between equal partners, meaning that I'll share something with you if you share something with me. It was reciprocal. It was back and forth. The difference with the treaty or the language that you see that the Christians had among one another, it was an agreement between unequal partners. In the worldly sense, you have people with wealth, people without wealth, and they got into agreement together and basically said, we don't want any needy people among us, so we're going to share, and I don't have any expectation in return when it comes to material possession or return on investment. This kind of contribution stands out. It stood out then, and it stands out now. And we imitate this model. Uh, we have a very diverse fellowship around the world. We have churches in first world, churches in the third world. Uh, Jakarta is an example of a church that's in a third world nation. Uh, we're an example of a church in a first world nation. And so there are different means, different resources. And so our conviction is we want to share. And it's okay that maybe in a worldly sense we're unequal partners, but we're all equal under God. So we want to share and do our best to make sure everyone has a chance to spread the gospel as much as possible. And so one of the things that we do once a year is we have a special what? Special contribution. If you're hearing about it for the first time, our fellowship, we give contribution every week to the church. But once a year, we have a special time where we give not only to some of the surrounding churches that we support here in New York and in New Jersey, but we also support a bunch of churches in the Caribbean and all over Africa. 
And we have joy in our hearts when we give this annual contribution. And any time that the world sees that a bunch of people give a bunch of money and there's no material return on their investment, guess what? It stands out. They think you're cray-cray, all right? What are you doing? You're giving money away? What are you getting in return? And of course, we do get a lot spiritually in return, but we give unconditionally. We give knowing that God's going to do something. He's going to build churches with the money that we give. And that stands out. You know, the New York church has given over a million dollars every year the last few years. And we've been a part of that incredible gift. You know, uh, we were hanging out in the, uh, what they call the sea region churches, Southeast Asia. And uh, here's a picture of uh, where a lot of these churches are. Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Japan, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos. 62 different churches, uh, starting all from a group of 15 people in Singapore that went out, continued to grow, and now a membership over 7,300 disciples. It's very encouraging. And what's so neat now is that even though Indonesia is a third world nation, Jakarta, uh, through their faith, have become a self-supporting church, which means that no longer uh, do they need money from outside sources. Now, outside sources in our churches, we still give money into there, but it's a mission society. So what they do is they basically see that money come in and they just start giving it away to the 34 satellite churches that the Jakarta church has planted. 34! And they send out a new mission team every single year. They said that the church in Vietnam is so eager to go out on mission teams that they're worried that they're going to lose their base fellowship in Vietnam, in the, in the main city, because everyone, every time they say, hey, we're going to send a mission team, everybody raises their hand. Now they have a screening process that's three layers long to make sure that people really are ready to go, or otherwise they'd have no church left in the main city. These people are so eager to help others to know God. Now what's also neat is that they're supporting the Hope Work, the Hope Worldwide Charity, which is also global, and they're building brand new orphanages and centers of hope throughout the whole Southeast Asian uh, region. One of them is on the island of Batam. Uh, I was like, is it Batam? They're like, Batam. Okay, all right. Uh, we were having fun with that. But they're building this brand new orphanage there. It's going to be ready soon. It's kind of halfway in between uh, Singapore and uh, Jakarta. And they're continuing to meet the needs. And I love this quote from the website that I read uh, just yesterday. Uh, here's an update. Please be praying fervently. It's no longer an issue of funds. We got all the money we need. When's the last time you heard that, right? We're totally set. Don't give any more. But we do need to get through a lot of bureaucracy. Please be praying for a breakthrough. Amen. We'll pray for that. God is good. And they are real faithful over there as they raise money to give to other people. You know, I really want to put this before you and challenge your heart, especially our members uh, here, disciples for a long time. Our special contribution is coming up on June 11th. That's right around the corner, people. We're about to be in May. We're less than six weeks. I know some of us have been saving all year. Others of us are hearing it right now going, I'm not ready, oh my gosh. All right, I won't ask for a raise of hands. But guys, let's get excited in our hearts about this and decide we're all going to give something. Now, of course, it's a goal that everyone gives $365. Some of us can give a lot more than that. Some of us are going to have, have a lot of faith to be able to give that amount. 
We've been doing great, and I believe we'll do great again this year, but I want to really just beg your heart to be open to the miracles God can do with the money that we give. Amen? You know, singers are going to come back on, and I want to close this out. But I want to share finally about a couple named George and Irene. George and Irene uh, have passed on, but uh, believe it or not, they were missionaries in the 1940s. And uh, I shared a little bit about this this last Wednesday. But uh, they were part of the Mainline Church of Christ and uh, went out in the missionary field, just incredible hearts. And they got into Japan and they had taken a special contribution before they went to Japan to share their faith. And they raised, in 1949, a whopping $3,000. With that $3,000, they were able to do a lot. Three of the things they were able to do is they bought land for a Christian cemetery They bought land for a Christian camp by Mount Fuji. And they also bought land to build a church with a parsonage connected. It's so neat because that $3,000 went a long way. Time would go on. And in the 1990s, they would connect with our fellowship there. And Frank and Erica Kim were leading the work uh, on the mission field in Japan. And by then, the uh, building had kind of worn out a little bit. And they had already kind of outgrown it. And so they were praying that God would do a miracle and to help them to be able to make a bigger space so they could fit all the people that were coming. So they were praying, and uh, basically, and I shared this on Wednesday uh, and on Thursday with the artists, is that uh, the government came in and said, we want to buy part of your land. I mean, we're building a, a road here, and we need about maybe six or seven feet by 15 feet of the front of your property. And so they started negotiating, and then the offer came in. For that amount of property, we want to give you 40 million U.S. dollars. So they were like, yeah, let's do that. That, That'd be great. (laughs) It took them another 15 years to actually build the road, so they they were able to hang on to it uh, for a little while longer. Uh, They don't notice it's gone. And then they were able to build this beautiful church building for a fraction of that cost with one of the most amazing architects in the nation. Uh, And we were able to visit and worship in it. It's such a blessing. And I started thinking, you know, that $3,000 went a long way. And I wonder if you retrace the steps into 1948, 1949, as George and Irene got up in front of their small congregation uh, somewhere in the U.S. and said, hey, we need some money that's going to go to Japan. I'm not sure if you're even going to be alive to see what happens with that money. But we need your hearts to be in it. We need your wallets to be in it. And we ask that you give whatever you're able to give. And that $3,000 has continued to give. And God multiplied that three grand, not just to the many souls that have been saved and the work that's been done, but 40 million bucks, people. So I don't know what's going to happen on June 11th. But I do know and I do believe in a powerful God that can multiply our hearts and our gift. Do you believe it? You know, God multiplied it. He multiplied it into what you see before you, and I believe he's going to do it again. But as we close out today, we want him also to multiply our faith so that our compassion can cry out, our conviction can cry out, and our contribution can cry out. Guys, according to our faith, it will be done. Let's stand up. We're going to step out in faith and stand up in these areas and model today in New York City what a community of faith is supposed to look like. So the earth will indeed hear his voice.
Let's sing and close out together. Amen.